This morning we're back in 1 Peter chapter 5. We are going through this letter. We're coming to the very last chapter. We're nearing the end of this first epistle and um, sort of uh, camping out a little bit on what Peter mentions in these verses. Um, And the passage was read earlier to you, and you will notice in 1 Peter chapter 5, this is specifically directed to the elders uh, among you. This is directed to the leaders of uh, the churches, these scattered churches. Uh, therefore, is not in most translations, but really it should be because it means accordingly, in light of all the persecution that we are, you're experiencing, I now speak to the elders and how they lead you in the midst of all of that. And so that is uh, the context of what he says there. And I started last week just talking about that. I, I, I really am um, even walking in fear and trembling this morning after listening to Leviticus chapter 10 in our Sunday school class, uh, the fear of burning strange fire in your presence, the, the idea of doing something as a leader that would not please God. Uh, that is weighty on me at times, you know, just saying, God, I want to please you. And I uh, see the importance of that. And um, I, I read this to you last week. Let me just read it to you once again. Um, it says, the character and effectiveness of any church uh, is directly related to the quality of its leadership, to the quality and the godliness of its leadership. That's by Strzok, uh, Alexander Strzok, who's written an incredible book on church elders. And um, just the importance of the leadership. And some people don't think it matters, and some people don't think it's important. Some people just think, uh, who cares how a church is run? It's, that doesn't really matter. Well, it does matter. It's very important to God. Uh, there's so much is said about it. And we saw that last week. I took you through... Uh, Acts 14 and 15 and 16 and all the way through Acts and other places that they were establishing uh, elders or appointing elders and then deacons as well and showing that basically the New Testament says there are two offices in the church, the office of elder and the office of deacon and um, every local church should have that. I believe that is the biblical pattern of leadership and um, uh, elders lead, the deacons come alongside and assist the elders in the leading of that church. And so every church is responsible to recognize those leaders in the church. There's no, there's no other tiers above that. Sometimes people in some denominations will have tiers upon tier, upon tier, upon tier, all the way to the Pope if you want to. But the point is, there, there is none of that in the New Testament. It's the local church, autonomous with its elders and deacons, the people that, that the people know, leaders the people know, that the elders can be an example in front of. You can't do that from a headquarters in Nashville or someplace. I mean, it's got to be among the people. And that's how leadership is supposed to be. Uh, you're supposed to see it lived out in your leaders. 
Uh, you're supposed to see how they deal with struggles and trials and difficulties and even sins in, in, in your midst. Uh, you need to see that. That needs to be modeled for you. And um, so it's very important, I think, to, to talk about this and to just take a few moments to say a few things about elders and deacons. I'm going to talk about the passage this morning a little more than I did last week. But I just want to say a few more things if I can. We, we a few years ago, we made a transition from being a pastor pastor-led deacon board model of church government. I told you this last week. Um, we decided that that was not the biblical design, how God wanted it to look, and we began the process of moving away from that to an elder-led, elder-ruled church with deacons serving in their serving roles in the body of Christ. And so we moved from that and that transition. It was not an easy transition. I mean, you get used to something and you have to go through all the pains of change. But we made that transition and we're in the midst of that. Uh, and uh, we've been doing that for some time. And I think what, what you begin to see in this, and we're still learning, but elders appoint other elders. That's, I think you see that uh, in the New Testament. Uh, with, the, with the help and, and the, uh, of the congregation, this is done, but uh, you see examples of where the elders would go and appoint other elders. They would recognize the qualities. The elders might know things about individuals that the, the congregation would not know, but it's not that the congregation doesn't have a part in uh, helping identify those men uh, who would be leaders in a church. Um, Acts 14.23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church, speaking of the apostles, appointed for them elders in every church. Titus 1.5, Paul to Titus says, uh, set in order what remains and appoint elders. Um, but the congregation is involved because the congregation in Acts 15, it says, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them. And so we recognize that input is really important because there's things you know that we don't know about individuals. And so it's, it's something that we all want to be, be certain about because you put somebody in a very responsible position of leadership in the local church. Um, and 1 Peter 3.10 says these men must be tested. It's talking about deacons there as well, but we must, they must be tested. Very important. Our process here is we're trying to identify men who uh, have a desire, and for elders especially, have a desire for that, and to offer training for those men who have a desire to do that. We do have a training course that we'd like to help men, because office of elder is so important because you're going to be teaching, you're going to be dividing God's Word, uh, you're going to be counseling the Word. Uh, we want you to know the Word, be, at least have a biblical theology, an understanding of biblical theology. So we try to offer that program. It's, it's somewhat involved, but it's important. I think it's important to equip men who want to and who aspire to being elders. Um, and deacons, uh, it, we don't have the same intense program like that, but both elders and deacons, we identify and we maybe even approach some people. And we've been turned down before because, like I told you last week, uh, it's not the right season of life for somebody to be an elder. And so we, we understand that. Um, and they may want to wait a while or maybe they're just not aspiring to that. We're aspiring more for them than they're aspiring for it, maybe, or something like that. Um, and then if they're qualified, uh, 
you know, we'll interview them and in private and ask questions in private and tough questions in private um, and line up, do things line up with the qualifications of 1 Timothy chapter 3? If they're qualified, we recommend them to the church and uh, for affirmation. And we give like a three-week time period where that, that individual is basically, his name is out there and you can ask him questions or you can let us know of any questions you have, but it's just a very open process. Uh, we don't do a vote. We don't do that kind of thing, but we do have the affirmation process that lasts about three weeks. And at the end of that three weeks, we would ordain that individual to be a deacon or an elder in the church. I just tell you all that so you know that's how we do it. Uh, I'm not saying there are other ways to do it, but that's the process that we use. And it is our prayer that God will continue to raise up elders in our church. We need more elders. We really do. We're a growing church, and we do need more men to aspire to the office of elder, and we do pray that God would do that. It's not a popularity contest. It's not the richest person in the congregation. It's not the most influential person in the congregation. That's not it. It's a, it is an issue of character. It's an issue of character. And um, based on, on what God's Word says is required in that area. So we, I just present that to you and tell you that because that's comes up in the passage, and I don't get opportunities to talk about it very much, so I said I'll just take advantage of this opportunity since it is in the passage. Uh, so you be praying about that. You be praying about that. When you see I exhort the elders among you, let it be a reminder to you to pray for your elders and pray that God would raise up men to be elders who are qualified to do that. Um, I would say, just to tell you this, um, God has given some uh, objective, um, observable principles to help decide if someone is qualified to be an elder. Um, it's not just as aspiring, it is also uh, what the Scripture says in terms of being qualified to do that. If you turn to 1 Timothy 3 just for a moment, I think 1 Timothy 3 is interesting for several reasons. 1 Timothy chapter 3, just hold your hand and we'll come back to 1 Peter 5 in just a moment. But 1 Peter, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 3, a pastoral epistle. And in these letters, Paul is writing to uh, Timothy, in particular in this one, who is the pastor at the church at Ephesus. And he's writing to him to give him instructions on how, how you do the church. How is the church supposed to look? Uh, he's faced trials and difficulties, no doubt. And um, Paul had told the Ephesian elders way back in Acts chapter 20, he had told the Ephesian elders that uh, savage wolves are going to come. And some of those savage wolves are going to come from your midst. Some of you elders even are going to be those savage wolves. And that's starting to happen in Ephesus. That's starting to happen in Ephesus. And so when you come to 1 Timothy 3 and you see those qualifications, I think Paul gives those qualifications to help, to help with this problem of false teachers, false believers Go back to verse 3 of 1 Timothy 1. As I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia. This is back, a while back. 
Remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. 1 Timothy 1 verse 6, go down to verse 6. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. False teachers are rising up in Ephesus. Go down to verse 18. Paul even names them in 18 and following. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. And he names these two people, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so they will be taught not to blaspheme. And then another problem he was facing in the, the, the church in, in Ephesus, and that's the reason for the, the pastoral epistle, to help him to, to organize the church. And he talks in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, there were women who were teaching men. And he says in verse 12, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And he gives instruction there regarding women. And then he comes to 3.1, and that's the one we're going to look at in a little more depth in just a moment. But in 3.1, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. So so stuck in the middle of addressing these issues, it's this issue. And then chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. But the Spirit explicitly says that in the later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of hypocrisy of liars suiting their own conscience as with a branding iron. And they're going to teach things like forbidding marriage and abstaining uh, from certain foods which God has created to be gratefully shared. And gives further instruction in chapter 5, verses 19 through 22. Do not be deceived, excuse me, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of, of uh, Two or three witnesses, those who continue in sin, rebuke them. If you have a rogue elder, rebuke him. Don't let's let him go on and be unapproachable. Rebuke him in the presence of all so that the rest will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Don't appoint somebody to leadership in the church too hastily. Just because they got a great personality or they make a lot of money or they've been very successful in business or because they've done something, uh, you know, that doesn't mean they're qualified to be an elder. Now go back to 1 Timothy 3. I just want to show you three things, three things quickly, three things that he says about the office of elder. He says... It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires. Aspires is sort of the subjective side of this. Aspires, I believe, is a God-given desire to do the job. It's a hard job. It's a difficult job, but I still want to do it. Attitude. It's going to be tough. I know that, but I want to do it. I believe that's the role that God wants me to have in the church. That's aspiration. That's aspiring to something. To God, and I believe it's God-given. I believe it can be God-given. And I feel I'm called to do it. 
And then he lists the objective qualifications. Just because you aspire to do it, you may not be qualified to do it. You must meet certain spiritual qualifications to do it. Um, And these are observable, by the way. These can be observed. I cannot observe your aspiration, but I can observe these qualities. And these are things that are very important. So you can just think you're being very spiritual by saying, I want to be a preacher, I want to be a pastor, I want to do all of these things. And then, you, you, you know, and then you, your wife doesn't even like you or something like that. I mean, you got a problem. Or you got or whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of things. I heard a young man tell me that one time, I really want to be a pastor. My wife doesn't like the idea, but I really want to do it. I said, I don't think God really wants you to do that without your wife being on board. I said, this is tough. I couldn't do it without my wife. Could not do it without her support. So notice he says this. He gives three areas of qualification. Number one, gender. You must be a man. I said this last week. See it? It is a trustworthy statement if any man... If any man must be male, no such thing as a woman elder or a woman pastor. And you have to say that in our day and time, but this is not a biblical office for women. Women are extremely gifted. Women are great administrators. Women are great teachers. That is not what we're talking about here. Women are very talented, and they have roles in the church and roles in the family. We're talking about a role here. And just because a woman may be in a position of a leadership in a secular job, that does not transfer into the church for her to be an elder in the church. This is totally different. And this is where it starts. He must, this person must be a man. There are other areas where spiritually qualified women are needed in the church. This is not that area. And then he moves to the second qualification, character. And I'm not going to go into detail on all of these. You can get a great commentaries and they can give you more detail on them. But the big, big topic above them all is the word above reproach. You throw something at him, it doesn't stick, basically. Um, He he represents Christ in a credible way. Listen, elders are not sinless. They don't have glowing halos. If you're looking for one, you're not going to find one of these elders in this church, I promise you. But the point is, there is a general character that is consistent. It's consistent. It seeks to be consistent. An overseer, you see it there in that verse. An overseer, verse 2, must be above reproach. And then he gives these, what, what above reproach looks like. Um, the husband of one wife, further reason why I don't think we're talking about a woman here being an elder, but the husband of one wife, temperate, means, meaning, let's say this, it means he is a one woman man. He is loyal to one woman. Um, and everybody knows it. And everybody knows it. He doesn't flirt with other women. He doesn't, 
get on the internet and carry on endless chat rooms with other women or anyone that's not his wife, only his wife. He's a one-woman man. He's temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable. Let's skip able to teach just for a moment. Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, not argumentative, but he's gentle, peaceable. He's not money hungry. He's free from the love of money. He's not controlled by money. He's not self-willed. He's not argumentative. Those are things. He's not self-centered. He, he's he's um, none of those things. Those things are just listed there. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. He doesn't, I don't believe, we don't hold the position that elders, parents, kids have to be Christians. We believe that's the sovereign work of God. We believe Titus references the word faithful, not faith. Faithful, Titus says that it must be, children must be, have, be children of faith. We say that means faithful. In other words, he must be under the authority, that child must be kept under the authority of their parents. We believe that's consistent with 1 Timothy 3, and that's also a proper meaning of that word. And we can talk more about that if you ever want to talk more about that point, but that's our, our, our position on that. He does not, his children have to be believers, um, but he does. <laughs> he does, for sure. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So that's, that's the objective, observable qualifications. And that's, that's the folks that Peter is talking to. That's presupposed. That's the individuals that Peter is addressing chapter 1 to, of, excuse me, chapter 5 to. And then he, he also, there is a theological qualification. It's not listed here except to say able to teach. He must be able to divide the Word of God. He must be able to, to hold up the Word of God and tell you what it means. He doesn't have to be um, a preacher like me, but one who, uh, where I get up every Sunday and do this, it could be someone else who, who uses, who's, who's in a smaller context or who in a counseling context is able to just simply open the Word of God and teach you from the Word of God. So there's a theological side to this that's very important. Very important must be able to rightly divide the word of God and teach is what Titus 1.9 says. Titus 3.2 says it this way, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so get this, so that he will be able to both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. An elder must be able to do that. He must exhort in sound doctrine and he must be able to refute those who contradict. And so that's who Peter is talking to. People who have, they're, they're men who uh, have met the aspiration qualification. They're, they're men who have uh, met the character qualification. And they're men who have met the theological qualification. That's who Peter is addressing here in chapter 5. And they're men who are under persecution with their congregations. They're in the midst of that battle with them, uh, the elders among them, um, and they're scattered. And I guess the whole point is this role is not for the faint-hearted. 
It definitely is not for the faint-hearted, but because, you know, a consistency of life um, and theology is pretty impossible apart from the Holy Spirit working in you. I mean, your elders are made of flesh and blood just like you. We have residual sin just like you do, and we face temptations just like you do, and we live in a fallen world just like you do, and things are thrown at us just like they're thrown at you. And so we ask you for your prayers, and we ask you to hold us up to be men who finish well, men who um, are sustained by the Holy Spirit. But I just say that because it's, uh, it's not us. There's nothing special about us. But it is a role that you can take seriously. And every man and every woman is held accountable to these qualifications. Excuse me, should live up to these qualifications, but elders are held accountable to them. Elders are held accountable to the First Timothy 3 qualifications. The rest of everybody else is, that should be the aspiration of everybody else to live up to those as well. And so Peter gives this charge. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 5. He gives this charge to the elders in, chapter, in verse 1. He calls himself the fellow elder. He's not the pope. He's just some fellow elder. He is an apostle. The apostles will die off eventually. He will die, and Paul will die, and John will die, and the apostolic age will end, and we'll just have the Word of God, which they... Uh, we have is the teaching of the apostles and the word of God. It's their teaching uh, that we, we gather around, we worship around. Um, but he's a fellow elder, he says in verse 1. And then he makes this statement, a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He, and he saw those witnesses. He was definitely a witness of sufferings of Christ. I don't believe he was at the crucifixion, but he was a witness to the sufferings that Christ went through. Let me read this to you back in Ephesians 20. This is kind of interesting. Back in Ephesians 20, verse 28, listen to this. He tells the elders there, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God. Notice this. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He says that's, that's the precious flock that you are to oversee, that you are to shepherd, the flock that was paid with the high price of his own blood. And notice whose blood it was. To shepherd the church of God, which he, pronoun goes back to God, which God purchased with, pronoun his goes back to God, God purchased with his own blood. That just points to the deity of Christ right there. Christ is God, and it was His blood, the blood of God, the Son, that was shed for the church. You don't want to miss that. He purchased with His own blood. God did. Elders, don't forget you're leading the bride of Christ who was purchased at a very high price. That's how he begins in verse 1. And also a partaker of I, Peter, am also a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Uh, not only purchased by his blood, but this body of Christ, this bride of Christ, awaits the glory that is to be revealed.
So he kind of lays down some groundwork in verse 1 of his appeal, of his charge that he's about to give. Just want to remind you that I told you you have the word elders in verse 1. You have the word shepherd in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you. And you have exercising oversight. Uh, You have the word for overseer there. So when we talk about overseer, when we talk about shepherd, when we talk about elder, we are talking about the very same person. That's not three different offices. That is very important to understand. Some people have broken that down into three offices. That is not three offices. A pastor shepherds. A pastor oversees. An overseer shepherds. A pastor oversees. I mean, that's the same word, just the different roles that he takes on, the different functions that he has. But he calls the pastors, the elders, in verse 2, to shepherd the flock. So you're talking here about the sheep. You're talking here about all of us as the flock of God. You're talking about all of us as, as a flock of sheep. Shepherd the flock. And it's more than feeding them. It, it implies everything that's in the sphere of shepherding. Shepherding uh, involved guarding. It involved guiding. It in, involved feeding. It would involve counseling, rescuing, reproving, and encouraging. It's just interesting that he uses the word shepherd. It's just interesting that he uses the word shepherd. If you were living in Peter's day, in Jesus' day, being a shepherd was not at the top of anybody's career path. It just was not. It would have been at the bottom, if anything, to be a shepherd. Nobody was walking around saying, oh, I want to be a shepherd when I grow up. Nobody said that. Nobody said that. That, that was considered the lowest rung on the ladder. It was at the very bottom. Shepherds lived with sheep. 24-7. It was an unending task. It, it, no matter the weather conditions, you were with the sheep. You fed, guided, and protected, like I said earlier. Uh, what was interesting in Israel, shepherds were ceremoniously unclean. They could not go into the temple. They were kept out of worship. They were banned. They were under the ban. They could not go into the presence of God. They were unclean. The Mishnah said... Uh, that they were to be banned from the temple. They were just under the ban. They were, you know what they say? They would say, there's only one thing lower than a shepherd, and that's a leper. So, and you see, the reason for this uncleanness thing is because they couldn't keep all the regulations. 24-7 with sheep? How are you going to keep all those rules? You couldn't wash your hands at certain times of day. Your hands were always messed up dealing with sheep. You couldn't pray at certain times a day. You didn't know what you were going to be doing that time of day. You, you couldn't attend the festivals and the feast days. And you couldn't avoid touching blood or dead animals. And those are just the kinds of things that people who fight off wolves are going to encounter and, and therefore they would be viewed as unclean. And in addition, they had to work on Saturdays. They couldn't get Saturdays off. They had to work on the Sabbath. They couldn't keep the Sabbath law and ritual. And so they're spiritually unclean, just like a leper. And you know what's interesting, though? 
You know the Christmas story. You know Luke chapter 2. You know verses 2, 8 through 20. You know that in the field there were abiding shepherds by night with their sheep. And the heavenly host appears and talks about this one being born in Bethlehem. Get up and go there. And they go there and they worship him and they come back and they tell everybody. So who does God choose? The lowest ones on the rung of the ladder in society to be the first messengers of the king has come. (laughs) I just think that's an exciting thought. I just think that's an exciting thought to think that they were the first ones, the first messengers. So it's fascinating that God would say shepherds are going to be the metaphor that we're going to use when we talk about pastors and elders you're going to be called a shepherd. You're going to shepherd the sheep. And so when he says that, he's definitely calling pastors and elders and overseers to faithfully lead, protect, guard, guide, and feed the flock. Hebert in his commentary says this is a term of urgency, something that needs to happen and always be happening. He also says that it's... Uh, in the diminutive form, meaning a little flock. I like that. Shepherd the flock, the little flock of God. I think it reminds you, if you're uh, familiar with John chapter 21, after Peter had denied Christ uh, three times, just as Christ had predicted, and he felt terrible about the whole thing, And then when he and the other disciples were down at the water at the end of the book of John, and he sees Jesus, and here's what Jesus does. Jesus gives him his first and only ordination exam. He says this. It's the same question. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And to each thing, Jesus would say, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. I mean, these very words had to remind Peter of that. That was what he, how he was ordained as an elder, as an apostle of Christ. And, and that's the motive right there. Do you love me? I would even say that's the motivation to even know if you're a Christian. Do you love Christ? Our motivation for everything we do in the Christian life should be because we love Christ certainly should be the heart of an elder and certainly should be the heart of a believer in Christ. You know why I say that? It's because he puts his love in you. First John, if you belong to him, he has put his love in your heart. A love for God and a love for others. That is only something God can put there. I'm talking about the love that really loves. I'm not talking about the feeling stuff. I'm talking about the love that really loves. That love that sacrifices for others. And so he says, if you love me, shepherd my sheep. So I'm sure that's all in Peter's mind when he hears that. And I think what's important to understand, we're talking about sheep, we're talking about uh, an animal that is prone to straying away. And I'm a sheep too. I want you to know that I'm not saying I'm talking, I'm a sheep talking to sheep. I'm a sheep too, so I know how this is. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We sing that all the time because we know it's true. But sheep wander. They're prone to wander. You you get them on track. You get them in a certain place, and next thing you know, they've gone off somewhere. 
They've had their ears tickled by somebody or something's appealed to them and they went to check it out. All we like sheep have gone astray. That's what Isaiah 53 says. Each has turned his own way. Psalm 119, verse 176, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Jeremiah 50, verse 6, my people have become lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. Other animals always seem to have a smell. They can always uh, have a smell to find food and water. Sheep don't have that smell. They can't do that. They've got to be directed to the green pastures. They've got to be directed to the still waters. You know that's true. You know your heart. I know my heart. If I, sometimes if I didn't have the accountability of standing in this pulpit every week, I hate to think where I would be. And the accountability of other Christians in my life, I hate to think where I would be. And the accountability of, of God's Word and saturating my mind and heart with God's Word, I'd hate to think where I would be. I'm prone to wonder. I'm prone to look for the next thrilling thing with a pragmatic approach to what works versus what's true. So it's not a coincidence. Uh, he calls shepherds and sheep because that's what we are. Care for my bride, the church. Tend the sheep, Peter, and tell the others to do the same thing. And that's why he says in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God, of God among you. And I just want to tell you a few things of what it looks like, and then I'm going to close, okay? I'm just going to tell you a few things of what the shepherding looks like, and then I'll pick up next time. But provide for the flock. That's what you do. You provide for the flock. You provide food for the flock. That is a shepherd's number one job. Peter, uh, uh, excuse me, Timothy, preach the word. Hey, you know what? It's going to get really bad in the last days. First Timothy chapter 4 says. It's going to get really bad in the last days. He says it again in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's going to get really bad in the church in the last days. He says, but you know what you're supposed to do? Preach the word. You don't stop preaching the word. You don't change the agenda. You don't change the agenda of the church just because everything else is going crazy all around you. You preach the word. The word of God is God-breathed. It's breathed by God, and that has power, and you just keep preaching that. That's how you provide for the flock. You preach God's word. You don't give them McDonald's every Sunday. That's you want to do that to your kids. Maybe you do that to your kids. I don't know. But the point is, you don't do that to grow and be healthy. All the apostles were teachers. When Ezekiel presents the picture of a bad shepherd, here's what he says. He does not feed his flock. That's a bad shepherd. Pastors can get involved in all kinds of political causes and neglect feeding their own sheep. They do this all the time. Pastors could get involved in all kinds of community activism, all kinds of things, and neglect feeding their sheep. That's a pastor's priority. Must be. Ear-tickling pulpit, pulpits don't feed anybody. Emotionalism, all that say-what-I-want-to-hear type stuff. Isaiah's day, that's what they wanted in Soft words. Keep preaching soft words to us. Don't ever say anything hard to us. Just always say something soft. You know what soft words do? They just make hearts harder. It hardens concrete. 
It doesn't break up concrete. Hard words, my word is like a hammer. It beats up hard hearts. Soft words don't break up concrete. Soft words just make you feel better about you and never get beneath the surface and break up anything. So that's the task of the preacher to exposit the scripture for you. Counseling is the same way where the word of God is spoken truth in love. The pure milk of the word You've seen all these verses. Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And I think that's how a pastor can provide decisive leadership. If, if you think that the elders just are giving their opinion, that doesn't give you much hope. Then you go, oh. But if they can stand up and say, based on some principles in God's word, this is the direction I think we should go. If they can anchor it to the book, that gives you a lot more confidence than somebody just giving up and giving their opinion. Um, that's, and I think when you speak for God's word, you can speak decisively. You don't, have to, you don't have to say, well, this is a up for debate. What do you all think? That's not it. I don't, we don't approach God's word that way. It's not up for debate. There are some things we can talk about and there are differing views on some secondary issues. Yeah, that's fine. But every issue up for debate, every moral issue up for debate because I'm going to hurt somebody's feelings or because somebody I know I love thinks this way and I don't and I know it's wrong but I still love that. Well, don't let, don't let, don't let a relationship with another individual come, be, come between you and your relationship with God speaking the truth in love. Sheep are born followers, one writer says. They need decisive leadership. They need a human conductor. I know, I do. I do. I'm a sheep too. So, no animal is more docile than the sheep. And the shepherd leads the sheep. And then secondly, protecting the flock. And it's protecting from false teachers. And Philip Keller gave an interesting illustration. He said he, said he saw a sheep just sitting there. The wolf or the predator, it may not have been a wolf, but the predator is sitting over here. The sheep just goes along his merry way, not even realizing the predator is in the room. Just acting like nothing is wrong. He says, he says, he doesn't realize he's about to be torn to shreds. He just goes about his merry way. He doesn't realize the precariousness of the situation. He doesn't realize he has dangers all around him. He thinks everything is okay. And he says that's how it is sometimes in the church. People don't realize how vulnerable we are and how unaware. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock who the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, Acts 20 says. After my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock and from among your own selves. This is in Acts 20, 28. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw disciples away from them. And it comes in the internet, it comes in books, it comes in blogs, and it comes from among yourselves. And that's more deadly, among ourselves is more deadly than from the outside. We can deal with what's on the outside trying to come in. It's difficult when it's on the inside trying to influence others. 
That's when it gets more difficult. That's when it gets more deadly and more subtle. But that's what was happening in the Ephesians church from among yourselves, even among you elders, Hymenus and Alexander, even among you guys, you're going to be leading people astray. And so the shepherd must protect the sheep. Retain the standard of sound words, Timothy, 2 Timothy 1. Guard the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, this treasure that's been entrusted to us. We're stewards of the, the word of God. We've got to guard, guard it. Refute false doctrine. Must be able to exhort. You know, yes, you know, I don't like to just I don't like to just stand up at a pulpit and name names of people you should be wary of. But when I know we are using those things in our own church, I feel like I need to tell you, beware of that. I told you that a while back about Beth Moore. I just warned you about this woman in Texas who's very popular with women. And early on, she, did, she said some really good things, and she has written some good things and all of that. And then she has gone totally off the deep end, folks. She has. Into mysticism, preaching to men. And then, you know, and, and then there's uh, Rick Warren and um, things he's written in the past, and he's changed his views on just about everything. I mean, he was very popular, purpose-driven life and all of that stuff. You know, whenever a book is popular with everybody, I just get, I get weary. I say, oh, no, what's going to be the thing? New York Times likes it. Oh, gosh, what's wrong here? And Christians like it? What's wrong here? And then I like Tim Keller, but my goodness, on Gospel Coalition, he writes all this stuff about critical race theory, and I'm going, what is he doing undermining the gospel. And I'm not saying he's a heretic, but I am saying these people say things that are not helpful. They say things that are not helpful. And I could go on. And it's not about secondary issues. I'm talking about fundamental issues that affect and attack the gospel. So a shepherd has to say those things from time to time, and I just want to say them and limit my saying them to things I know that affect us. Because this is who I'm responsible for, no one else. I can't attack everybody out in the Christendom, but I can certainly, those that I know, affect us. Well, I'm going to need to end because we do need to partake of communion. But next time, I'm going to show you some of the temptations that a pastor has to avoid greed serving under compulsion, um, lording it over people. We'll go into some of that next time. Father, thank you for this time. I, I, I just love being one of the shepherds of this church. I love these people. I love the many years they've put up with me, and, and uh, I just thank you for them. I thank you, God, for the privilege to serve here. I've grown immensely. I've failed more than I even want to stand this pulpit and admit. But I'm so thankful that you are a God of grace and mercy. And thankful, Lord, that you are in charge and in control. And I do pray for our other elders that we would stand firm. And I do pray for the men that you will raise up from among this congregation to serve as elders and to serve as deacons. I pray that every man that desires that would come forward. Let us know. Let us know and let us help you. Let us help them, God. We thank you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen.